Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps onto what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 129 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So before we get started, a fun little update. We just crested the 20,000 download mark, which is pretty exciting. It didn't take me quite as long to get my second 10,000 as it did to take my first. I'm excited about that. We inch along. Podcast listens have been way down. They were huge in the summer. Two things I think contribute to that. One, I'm not marketing it at all. I just, my editor makes me these wonderful thumbnails and I put it in my story one day and that's all I do. And when I look back, I used to really push it a lot more on my social media. So that's part of it. And I've also really been focusing on the book, although not enough on that either. So today's episode 129 came to me this morning. It is just the beginning of February. You'll hear this mid to late February. I was listening to another podcast and I do this now. I've become very, very addicted to podcasts. When I'm in the car, it's like my new passion. And I'm a bit addicted to true story podcasts, family memoir types. There's a couple of Hollywood stars that have done podcasts about their lives. I've listened to a couple of podcasts about different people, you know, sexual abuse in the Catholic church, just true stories of people that have, you know, either gone through terrible things and survived or maybe not survived and it's about them. I was obsessed with the Missing Persons podcast for a while. I listened to another one about IVF and then I listened to one about sperm donors and how they didn't used to keep track of them. And there are all these groups of people that are half siblings because they have the same sperm donor for a father. All these crazy things, all of them connected to some aspect of my life, whether it be the IVF piece, having a baby late in life piece, losing a child, child loss and grief, sexual abuse, trauma. This one, my new favorite, is called Family Secrets. And it's done by a woman named Danny Shapiro. It's not a new podcast. It's in its like fifth year, I believe. But I just found it a few days ago. And so I'm already up to like episode eight. Not surprisingly, she started the podcast because she found out that her biological father was someone other than the man who raised her. So everything she believed about her heritage and her genealogy turned out to not be true. So she started this podcast knowing that there must be other people that have secrets in their lives that affected them. So I've listened to an episode about a man who found out that his father was a Catholic priest that had, you know, impregnated his mother and all hush hush. There was one about a family who lived in a very upscale white community in Connecticut. And the father's big secret was that his mother was black and that, you know, that he wanted, it was just a time where he wanted his family to be as successful as possible. And and I remember his kids all knew there was some big secret. And when they found out, they were like, that's it. But it was, it was just interesting what goes into the minds of people who keep secrets. So the one I just listened to was about a woman who as a young girl had been abused by her father, physically by her father, and then physically, emotionally, and sexually by her stepfather. And so her secret was this aspect of her life that she lived with it, carrying it around. So I listened to the podcast and I, I listened to it sort of, you know, as I was driving here and there. So it was, I'd listen and I'd stop, I'd listen and I'd stop. When I finished it, I realized that I needed to address it and talk about it because so much of the podcast resonated with me. In a nutshell, this woman named Debbie Milliman, who is a woman interviewed in this podcast episode called Joyful Heart. 
Joyful Heart is the name of a foundation in New York City started by Mariska Hardigay, or Hargitay, obviously her last name. She's on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. She plays Olivia Benson. When she started that role, all the studying and research she had to do around sexual abuse because SVU, Special Victims Unit, focuses on crimes against people that are sexual in nature. She realized what a need there was for so many areas of support, particularly for women. Although as the foundation grew, she realized that the number of boys and men that were abused by caregivers was astronomical as well. So this foundation has done amazing things. Debbie Milliman, whose story I'm going to share in a moment, is on the board of directors of this foundation. And she you know, works tirelessly on this foundation to help people that have been victims of sexual abuse. So the long story short is she was born into a family, she and her brother, but her dad was abusive, physically abusive, yelling and screaming. And her mom and dad divorced. And she would go stay on the weekends. And she would remember that she was always sort of glad to go home back to just her mom because, you know, then they could recover from, she and her brother could sort of recover from that yelling, louding, screaming weekends. Then her mother remarried and the person her mother remarried was a monster. He had children. He beat the shit out of all of them, out of the little brother, out of Debbie, out of Debbie's stepsister and Debbie's mother. And her mother stayed in this marriage for, you know, five, six years while they were all getting the shit beat out of them on a pretty regular basis. But then she shared that along with the physical abuse for her was sexual abuse and that her stepfather regularly raped her in their bathroom pretty regularly for, you know, four years when she was 11, 12, 13. And it culminated when she, you know, she had started her period and then suddenly wasn't getting her period and and worried that she was pregnant and made up a story to her mom that she'd been assaulted at school. And when she went to the doctor, they did an exam. And the doctor said, she's got much too much scarring in there. She's, she's had a lot of sex. She probably has a boyfriend. She was 12 and a half at the time, sixth grade. And that's what the doctor said to the mother. Now, this was 1974, maybe. So I get it because I was right, right around her age. I'm two years younger than Debbie. And my sexual abuse came to the surface in 1976. So it's a similar time period. Nowadays, if a 12-year-old girl had vaginal scarring, she'd be whisked away <laughs> immediately. One can only hope. The mother took the daughter home. The daughter wasn't believed. The mother took the daughter home. She never did talk about whether or not she was pregnant or not. None of those details came up. It wasn't part of her story. But shortly thereafter, the mother divorced the stepfather. So she grows up, goes to high school, reconnects with her dad, goes off to college and does all this work. I don't, it wasn't ever really clear either when she was honest with her mother about what was happening to her. But what did come out was the mother shared with the stepfather, who was her husband at the time, that the little girl, you know, Debbie had been attacked, assaulted at school, raped at school. And the stepfather's response was like, oh, well, whatever. Didn't care at all. And then the mother, it dawned on the mother that his lack of affect was because he was the one doing it. And that was ultimately why she divorced him. But they never talked about it. This little girl was never counseled or talked to. A lot of the podcast talked about what she's done with her life, that she went into arts, the arts, and she's a, she's a master brander. She has a, a program in branding, which I'm not even really sure what that is. So she started the master's in branding program at the School for Visual Arts in New York City, which is essentially a 10-month graduate degree in branding. So when I first started recording my podcast, <laughs> I remember Jace asking me, so what's your brand? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, Kellogg's, Nike. <laughs> like I didn't, I, you know, those are brands for sure. And I've struggled a little bit with trying to self-identify a brand. Maybe I need to go get a degree in branding. But what she's done with her life is she's, she's devoted herself to her own personal healing and her own 
growth, and then also service to others. And and a lot of the podcast talked about what she's done in her adult life. And she talked a lot about how she got to the point after a ton of therapy, and even before therapy, that her desire to be happy was bigger than the anguish she felt about what had happened to her. Not that she could shove away what happened, because you can't. You can't box up what's happened to you and put it away like it doesn't exist. People try. People get very, very meticulous about boxing things up and having a little shelf for every emotion, but you carry them with you regardless of where you put them. So she talked a lot about her therapy, 30 years of therapy, constant growing and changing around processing the trauma, processing the reality of what happened to her, analyzing how it's affected her personality, that sort of thing. Like me, she's lucky in that she didn't end up, you know, a drug addict under a bridge, you know, turning tricks like a lot of children who are raped, you know, sexually abused do. But she also talked about how it's, it's affected every aspect of her life. Danny Shapiro was intrigued with her. So some of the things in her story really resonated with me. So here's where we're similar. She was born in 1961, Debbie, and I was born in 1963. She had a family, adult male in her family, sexually assault her. I did as well. Both of us share the fact that this person was oftentimes in charge of us, although not all the time, and was connected to family. So we had no say in whether we saw this person, whether we'd be alone with them, whatever. Her abuse abuse was a lot more painful and violent than mine. I've often said that not much of my abuse was painful. It didn't hurt. And not that I ever wanted my abuse to hurt, but it would have made me feel, have an easier time feeling like it was wrong. One of my big conflicts was that it never hurt. It was disgusting and it felt gross and I hated it and it was humiliating and everything else, but I was never in physical pain and she quite obviously was. So she has a lot of that. Plus her abuser was physically violent with her. Mine was not with me. She was being abused the same year as I was, quite honestly, maybe a little bit ahead. No, about the same year, 72, 73 71, 74. And that was me. My abuse started right around 71, 72 and continued until 76. So it was the exact same time. I was in New Hampshire being abused. She was in Long Island being abused. When it finally ended, it just sort of disappeared for her. But while she was being abused, when it first started, she talked at great length about how she couldn't wrap her head around the fact that it was happening. Like she didn't even know how to qualify what was happening. Like she hated it. She didn't want it to happen but she didn't have any frame of reference for it. Nobody talked about it, nobody. And I remember feeling the same way. I knew that that you weren't supposed to take clothes off in public. I knew that you weren't supposed to touch people down there or up here or whatever, you know, that there were certain zones that were private. You need to close the door when you go to the bathroom. I understood all that. So I knew that what was happening to me was wrong, but I didn't know that, that it was a thing or that there was a name for it. So she remembers really distinctly how one day she was reading the newspaper, you know, and she used to love the newspaper. And I did too. I I couldn't wait till the newspaper came. I'd spread it all out on the living room floor and read every page. So she read an Ann Landers, Dear Abby, Dear Ann, was like an advice column. And she read a letter from a girl who was being sexually abused. And the Ann Landers told her she should get help. And what Debbie did was she cut the article out of the newspaper and she put it under her mattress. And she would read it and it would remind her that she wasn't alone. And this, this sort of stopped me in my tracks when I was listening to the podcast. One of my biggest memories, and I believe I talk about it in the episode I talk about my sexual abuse, was I, was, I went for a haircut. There was a magazine at the, at the hair salon I went to, Peter's, which is just closing right now, which makes me so sad. And it was called True Story. And True Story, it was true stories. And they were always a bit scandalous. And so I loved reading it. 
because I sort of felt like I was getting away with something, like I was reading a grown-up magazine. And it was in that magazine that I read the story of a girl whose stepfather was molesting her. And she told the whole story about he'd come in to read to her and then, you know, how it just began slowly. And I remember suddenly I was drenched in sweat and I wanted to pass out and my heart was pounding. Not only did I realize that it was wrong, like that I was okay to feel that it was wrong, but in this story, her stepfather went to jail. And that's when I realized how wrong it was. Now, I was maybe sixth grade when I read this article, maybe. And I didn't finally get the guts up to tell anybody until I was going into eighth grade. So I put up with it for two more years. Those two memories stay with me. Her experience and that memory of mine resonate, like it connected for me. The other one sort of flows right from this, which was, why didn't you tell somebody? Or why, why did you continue to let it happen? Or why didn't you run away? And her abuser told her that if she told anyone, he would kill her brother. And so she didn't leave because she didn't want anything to happen to her brother. The number of older siblings I know who stick around and put up with abuse because they want to protect their younger siblings is too many to count. It's heart-wrenching because you have kids who have no choice about where they live and what's going on in their lives, rallying around to protect one another from the people that should be protecting them. And so she stayed. She, you know, He was physically violent. He beat up his own daughter, sad, so once she couldn't go to school. So, so she believed him. She believed that if she left, she would be responsible for her brother's death, and she would, couldn't live with that. I was never explicitly told, don't tell or I will hurt you. It was implied and it was couched a bit like, this is our secret. Don't you like it? Doesn't this feel good? Do you want me to keep going? You know, I never said, the only time I ever spoke in my abuse was when, when I was asked, do you want me to stop or do you want me to keep going? I would just say, I'm cold or I don't feel good or yes, stop, whatever. But the thought of telling somebody didn't enter my mind. It just didn't. It didn't enter my mind because it didn't seem, A, I didn't think I would be believed. And B, you know, you're a kid. The adults are the ones that say, why didn't you tell? Because as an adult, it makes sense to tell, right? Speak up, say something. But as a child, the first thing to do is to be quiet and to go within. And I think children do it in a a variety of ways. They don't want to tell on somebody. They don't want to be a rat. They want to be a tattletale. We own so much of what happens to us. I resonated with that, the fact that she put up with it. And she made a conscious choice. I don't want my brother to die. The abuse stopped for both of us right around the time that we were, you know, going through puberty. She started her period. I know for me, what sort of made me finally decide to tell was both of those things. I had started to develop. I was getting little breast buds and I was getting pubic hair. And I thought, oh no, I don't want, I don't want my abuser to see this because I was afraid it would go to the next level. I was never actually raped. But I knew in my head, I started to panic because I felt that the abuse was escalating as well. So I was able to leave a note and run away and tell. Her situation was thinking she was pregnant and making up the story. And then her mother figuring out, okay, it must be him because, you know, this, this makes no sense. And she divorced him. So it stopped for both of us in our teenage years. She never told anybody because she didn't think anybody knew. And so she carried with her the weight of this abuse all of her life until she was an adult. And again, she didn't get into the details of what made her finally confront her mother or any of that. I know for me, I told my mother and my mother believed me and I was supported in that. I never had to see that abuser again for a long, long time. But I was also told, so my abuser was like, you know, this is our secret, don't say anything. And then my mother also said, don't tell. Don't tell anybody, don't tell our relatives, don't tell family. 
And for whatever reason, my mother was very, very compelled to protect him, that he could go to jail. Do you really want him to go to jail? Well, well I'm not the one that made the bad choice to do the bad thing. So, so as much as I ache for, for Debbie having to carry this secret her whole life, she wasn't given the same message by both people. The abuser told her not, told me not to tell. And the person that was supposed to rescue me told me not to tell. So I was told right away that as a vagina bodied human, as a little girl, it was my job to protect that abuser of mine, that society wouldn't treat him well, that he might go to jail. And I know for me, that was incredible. I just, I just learned that I was, I was to be subservient, that I was to be quiet. I was to put my head down and do as I was told. That's a hard way to feel. That's an incredibly hard way to feel. When people push their political agendas and the people that are uncomfortable by what they hear are vilified for sharing when they're afraid or when they feel unsafe, I have a hard time with that. I think it's a trigger for me. But this was another piece of her story that resonated with me, was that she spent a long time keeping it secret, a long time. As she's gone into adulthood and done all of her therapy, she's reached out and tried to help others. So my way of, of trying to turn it around was more related to the fact that I lost my virginity to a, one of my high school teacher, a high school science teacher of mine, and how tied into my sexual abuse that behavior was, because I was the perfect target for somebody that likes teenage girls. My reality was that these things are secret and partly bad. And if you shouldn't be doing it, then that's why you're doing it. It was it was, it's really incredibly difficult to explain this. I hope that those listeners that have been abused sexually probably understand. I hope you, this resonates with you a little bit because I know it's hard for me, very hard for me. Because when you're quiet about something, there's this assumed complicity that you're complicit. There was a, a special victims unit SVU episode on about a girl that had an IQ of about 60. So she was clearly cognitively disabled and she wanted to fit in. She, she was with it enough to know that she got made fun of but she was a little girl, you know, she did not have the ability to consent. And these three boys took her into a closet at the school and all took turns having sex with her. And they had, you know, called her a retard and how much fun it would be to do a retard. And they sort of laughed at her and made fun of her. And, and she tried to laugh with them thinking that they were just having fun. And she didn't want them to get in trouble because she wanted to fit in. And she on the stand said, I would do it again. Yeah, I want them to like me. I'll do it again. And the judge in this episode, said that that was consent, that she liked it. It wasn't rape. And that really resonated with me a long time because she clearly didn't have a voice. Yes, should she be allowed to like sex and have sex? Yes. But, but the people that were having sex with her did not have her best interest at heart. It wasn't like a mutual act of love or even a mutual act of lust. And this episode was just phenomenal. The other thing I really liked about it was that it was just two women talking about the realities of sexual abuse. And and what that does to a psyche and what that does to a mindset. Another thing that I really resonated over with Debbie was as she got older, looking back on it, wondering, how did I survive that? Like, how on earth did I survive? And I think back a lot to the things I remember. She doesn't remember all of the episodes. She had far too many to remember every time that she was raped. I was lucky that my abuse occurred every few months you know, I had, I had big chunks of time where I thought maybe it would never happen again. But I do have memories that stand out for me. And we attach things to the event that have no connection. So of course, she was always wondering, what did I do to provoke him? What provokes him? What can I change? How can I change my behavior? What can I do differently? Constantly trying to, to modify and change 
living in a constant state of vigilance, right? To fend off the abuse. And I know for me, one of the first things I thought was my fault was this pair of underpants I was wearing. And I've talked about this before, but it came up. So I'm going to share it again. I had these green silky under, underpants with people on them, my people pants. They were like grown up underwear and they were smooth and silky. I remember feeling so proud of myself that they weren't like little Carter's underpants. Like they were my first big girl underpants, right? The first two times I was molested, I had those underpants on. I have the same pair of pajamas. And so I went to the park and I dug a hole and I set them on fire. <laughs> like I burned my underpants and I burned the pajamas. And I thought, there, I've gotten rid of, this must be what causes the abuse to happen, right? You know, like the low cut shirt makes, makes you get raped on the street because you shouldn't address that way. But that's what I did. I owned it, that those underpants and the pajamas were the reason. And of course it happened again in completely different jammies and in completely different underwear. So, but she has memories like that where certain events stand out and it's not until years go by that you can really process why you remember what you remember or how you remember. She also has shared in her podcast interview when she really confronted her mother. And I confronted my mother about this. Like, how could you not know? How could you not know this was happening in your house? Now, again, her abuse was much more violent. It happened in a bathroom. There was no lock on the door. Somebody could have just walked right in. She just wonders how, how her mother couldn't have known when they disappeared into the bathroom that something was going on. And her mother really claims that she didn't. Now, this is a mother that stayed with a guy that beat the shit out of her kids. So obviously her mother had her own set of issues, right? But her mother really truly claims that she didn't know. And that what made her put it all together was the doctor saying she's got too much scar tissue in her vagina for this to have been a one, one-time thing. She obviously is having sex. And that's when the mother sort of put it all together. My mother to this day will claim that she truly didn't know. And maybe she didn't. The first time I was abused, my mother was away. The rest of the time she was in the house. She was two rooms away or one room away or across the hall. And I can remember the same thing. Like, why is nobody waking up? Like, doesn't she notice that, that this is happening to me? Didn't she hear somebody walk up the stairs? Didn't she? How could she not know this is happening right, right here? Because I was always abused in my house. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty. I have to say. I can look back on things now and realize, wow, how did I not see that? But my mother had her own abuse as a child. Talk about generational trauma and setting your life up to see, you know, to be just like the life you grew up with. Deb didn't get into this too much in her podcast episode, but she has had a life, an adult life, free from violence, free from drug use or abuse, free from, from continued abuse of her. I don't know how she's done that. And I don't know anything about her personal life other than that she's very successful professionally. I came back to Concord to teach and coach at the high school I went to or teach in the district and coach so that I could be an ear for young girls. So that if somebody was hurting them or bothering them, there would be somebody that understood. And that's one of my favorite things about coaching girls sports is the surprising number of female athletes who got into athletics because of abuse, got into athletics as a way to make peace with their bodies, right? And, you know, athletics is relatively new. It's, a, it's athletics for girls didn't really start until I was in high school. So it's in my lifetime. I remember what it was like to not have athletic opportunities. But the number of trauma victims that utilize movement in athletics as a way to quell the beast. And in my years teaching and coaching specifically, the number of girls that I counseled on abuse situations at home and situations they felt unsafe in and boyfriend problems and all of this, right? Eating disorders, all those things. And I always felt like it was where I belonged. It was one of the hardest things for me when I lost my job was that I was, I was turned into the bad guy somehow. And I'll never 
that sits with me still, that people would look at me and think I was the dangerous one when my motivation and mission was always to provide a safe place for voices, right? A safe place for people who felt unsafe to come and have a talk. That podcast episode brought up a whole plethora of issues for me and memories and things that I still still cope with. One of my behaviors that I really can parallel to the, the abuse for me is right after the abuse would happen, I'd be vigilant. Like I'll, I'd keep my room perfectly clean and I'd stick to a schedule and I would, I would just like organize my life. It was like a response to the trauma. And as, as the months would go by, I would relax. You know, I would maybe not make my bed every day. I would, you know, I would maybe wouldn't pick the dirty laundry up off the floor. I, I often felt that if I did everything right, God would not punish me. And sure enough, I'd, I'd go back into a comfortable lifestyle and boom, I'd get molested again. So it was this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of me attaching my behavior pattern to the actions of my abuser, which of course his actions weren't related to my behaviors at all. I look in my life how, you know, like I did that whole 75 hard and I, for four months, I didn't have any alcohol and I ate really well. And, you know, then the holiday seasons come and I start having alcohol and, you know, January came and you know, just, I got sick and the whole, the whole month was just a clusterfuck. And so, you know, I didn't give up drinking and, you know, I had yogurt today. Like, you know, I haven't stuck with, not that I need to eat in that rigid of a way, but I did all these things and I felt so much better. And then little by little, I've just fallen back into the bad pattern. Right. And so why? So why was I so happy when I was rigid, right? Rigid and focused. And now I'm happy. And then I cut back a bit and I have a, I have a candy bar or a Christmas cookie or some, or some dairy or some sugar or a drink. And then suddenly, you know, let's have five drinks or screw it. I'm just going to eat whatever I want for five days. You know, these are minor things in the big picture of life, but they send me into a tailspin of repetition. Like here I go again. And it connects as well to my love of education because every, every year as a start and a finish. So each year in your job is a brand new year. You can start over, you can be different. So all of these things have been swirling around in my head. Today is February 3rd and it's the first day that sunrise is after five o'clock. Yay. So the days are getting longer. So all of these things are positive for me because they indicate spring and, you know, feeling better in warm weather and getting outside and all that sort of thing. And those were things I clung to as a child. So why did I decide to share this whole podcast? Well, anything you're healing from, anything, any traumatic event, whether it's your house burns down, you get divorced, your dog dies, whatever the trauma is that happens in your life, you have all these different phases of healing from it and dealing with it. Healing and grief is not linear. It's quite circular. I circle around with the sexual abuse again and again and again. I have a, an amazing therapist. I talk about her quite a bit. Her name is Carolina. She doesn't like me to call me her therapist, but she has a degree in psychology, so she gets it. And she's really, really good at taking our pathology and tying it to our behavior professionally. So what's holding me back? And my big block has been the Molly B Foundation. And so Whenever I have a feeling now, rather than getting swallowed up in the feeling, I'm inclined to step back and take a look at it. Like, huh, let me notice this feeling I'm having right now. Why am I feeling this way? And I've had a very, very triggering and frustrating January. My whole school board experience was triggering to my job loss and my first year on the board. All of those memories bring up Roy and my feelings around him and all that that relationship did to my life. And it brings up all the steps I take to tread water and not make any progress in marketing my book or marketing the podcast. It's been an interesting January for me and I ended it feeling not bad. So by the time you hear this, we'll be almost done with February. And my big goals for February have been 
you know, to maintain small things each day. So hopefully this will air on the 20th-ish. So hopefully I'll have 20 days of small things done every day, habit stacking, so to speak, and just trying to put myself into a better frame of mind. But all of the sexual abuse and all of the things that that caused for me in my life, the decisions I made, you know, the alcohol and the drugs that I put into my body, the guys that I slept with, the people I chose for relationships and why, the relationships I've stayed in and the ones that I've lost. When I step back, so many of my choices are so clear and my, the friendships I choose and the things I'm willing to do for people, you know, and get taken advantage of and that sort of thing. All of it, all of it stems back to a mindset created by these events early, early in my life. And listening to this other woman tell a story that's very different than mine, but so similar than mine as mine in so many ways was amazing. But I'm going to reach out to both of them because such a big part of my life has been secrets. I remember when I went to AA and you, you do the whole honesty inventory. And I remember that was as helpful for me around not feeling like I need to make up a story to protect myself. That was one of the things that helped me with that aspect of my trauma was that I don't have to create a story that the truth won't put me in danger. That was a battle for a long time. For those of you that are child abuse survivors, whether it's physical or sexual or emotional, don't berate yourself when it all comes back around and you feel like you've made no progress. These things are not linear. They circle around. And the more that we can support one another and share our circular experiences, the easier and better our therapy will be. One of the biggest things Debbie said in her testimony in the podcast was to ask for help, that you shouldn't have to do these things by yourself. I have a hard time sometimes asking for help. Not always. When I really need it, I'll ask or demand. <laughs> but there are times when it comes to me that, that I'm reluctant to ask for help. So I get it. So anyway, today was just a day of reflecting, reflecting and pondering and remembering. You know, at age 60, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm doing okay. But I have certainly lived a life full of grief and trauma. And I have certainly lived a life full of joy and happiness. I have. Thank you for listening, first of all. Thank you, thank you. And share the podcast with somebody. I really would love to get my listens back up. Be good to yourself. Always be good to yourself. And if that means ask for help, then ask for help. After you're good to yourself, be good to someone else. And sometimes a great way to be good to yourself is to help someone else. And as I always say, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.